Okay, uh, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to find the book of Exodus, uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, the words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me in a moment or two. Uh, we are coming to the end of our series on the book of Exodus, and we're going to focus on chapters 32 all the way through to 34 today, particularly focusing in on chapter 32 of the book of Exodus. And in the Exodus story so far, you get this um, kind of classic redemption story, which has become uh, uh, something that's been copied and repeated many, many times in books and movies and films. Uh, and the kind of the, the, the building blocks of the story are very familiar to us. You've got victims in slavery, you have this evil overlord, Pharaoh, and then you see God rescue them and bring them out, and they, this dramatic rescue, and then this kind of march into their glorious inheritance, which is pretty much the script of most movies you might watch these days, but there's a bit of a twist in this story. There's something that doesn't quite fit the script. There's something that you read it and you think, uh-oh, something has gone wrong here. Because in these chapters we're going to look at today, the Israelites, the people of God, who've been rescued out of slavery, where God's poured out his love on them, has revealed himself to them, they turn their backs on him in quite a dramatic, horrible way. And one of the reasons we've been going through the book of Exodus is because in this story of the people of God written thousands of years ago, we can find our own story about how God has rescued each of us out of the sin that keeps us in slavery and bondage and has rescued us. He's drawn us out to draw us into his plans and his promises. But what we find is that we don't need just freedom from some kind of external slavery on our lives. And often we like to, it's popular in our culture today to think of ourselves as victims. It's quite a popular narrative that lots of people cling on to, and many people are victims of lots of different things, of oppression, of abuse, of being looked down upon, trodden down upon because of the color of their skin or their gender or because your boss at work just takes a dislike to you. In many ways, we've probably all experienced being a victim in some part. But there's also not just an external problem that we face, but there's, there's an, an internal issue in our hearts. God wants to save us and rescue us, not just from things that happen outside of us, but the internal rebellion in our souls. And that's what we're going to look at Today, So I'm going to read all of chapter 32, so it's quite a big chunk, but it's a fascinating story, so please stay with me as we go through it, and then I'm going to pray. Here we go, it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold 
that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff Necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did these people do? to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who should go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold, but now, if you'll forgive their sin, but if not, Please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Let me pray. Jesus, when we open your word, we want to take it seriously. We don't want to mess around with it because it's your word to us. It's your gift to us. And we want it to shape us and change us. And God, we confess we we need you, Holy Spirit, We need you to take these words and imprint them on our hearts. We want you to change us from the inside out. We want you to transform us by your grace. So we pray that these words would speak to us today, that they would change us, and more than anything else, we want to see you right in our hearts today. We pray, Holy Spirit, Help us. We need you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I guess when you read that story, or if you've been reading the whole book of Exodus, the obvious question would arise of why, why do the people of God do this? You know, they've, they've, we, we get to read about God's salvation story. We get it heard told to us of what happened thousands of years ago, but they were able to tangibly see and experience God's rescue. They, they saw when the plagues fell on the gods of Egypt. They saw Pharaoh and his army defeated. They saw, you know, they walked through the Red Sea, this wonderful miracle. They went into the desert and received God's provision. His manna, this food that he just miraculously provides for them in the desert. They've seen this pillar of cloud and fire going before them. 
They saw, they knew God in such powerful ways. They've been there, camped to the bottom of the mountain. They've seen this cloud descend upon the mountain as Moses has gone up to receive the law. They've known God in such a deep, profound way, and yet they rebel. They turn their backs. So why does this happen? Because what happens here really is they're breaking the first, at least the first two of the commandments that God's giving to them. God says, don't make for yourself an idol. And that's exactly what they've done. They've made themselves an idol. And more than, it's more than just they've made themselves an idol. They've, they've actually, in this story, they've constructed a whole false religion. Because Aaron makes this golden calf and then he builds an altar and he sacrifices to it. And then they hold this festival afterwards. It's a whole religious system that they've built in opposition to God and his ways. So why did that happen? Why did they rebel? Why did they fall into idolatry? I'm gonna give you five reasons that that happened from the first few verses. First of all, they were impatient. They were impatient. We see that it was the delay, if we look at the verse here, it says when the people saw that Moses delayed, that delay was probably about four or five weeks. <laughs> That's all they had to wait. But yet they got impatient. They wanted God to deliver on his promises now. They wanted their inheritance now. They were greedy, they wanted it right in that moment, which is so often how we treat God. We don't trust his timing. We don't want to wait. We want the good things. We want our best life, and we want it now. We don't want to wait for anything, but particularly we don't want to wait for God. And we think, God, why aren't, look at all, this, all these problems. Why won't you come and fix them? We get impatient with God, and if we're not careful, that can lead to idolatry. The second reason they fall into idolatry is disappointment. That, that delay leads to a disappointment. Where is Moses? He, he, he led us out, but what's become of him? They, they feel let down, feel disappointed. Moses hasn't delivered for them. And so often, we can find ourselves in the same situation. That, that delay that we get impatient at can often lead to disappointment in our heart. I mean, that's how you feel. You're just... When you pray and you think of all the things you've asked God for, you just feel a bit disappointed. That it hasn't quite worked out the way that you prayed it to be. I've asked God for all these things. And yeah, I know God isn't this magic genie who just provides for my needs, but still, you feel a bit disappointed in your heart that God hasn't quite moved in the way you wanted. Maybe you're disappointed in the church, that it's not quite what you read in the Bible, and you think, oh, I feel let down. 
Maybe leaders in the church have disappointed you and have let you down. And that can lead, if we're not careful, to idolatry. Another thing that's happened is ingratitude. They've forgotten what God has done for them. I mean, can you imagine just that God has rescued them and led them out of Egypt, but instead they build a golden calf and say, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. They've forgotten what God's done for them. And they, they bestow that honor on a piece of gold instead. So often when we forget what God's done for us, it leads to, I guess, ingratitude. Or perhaps even the other way around, that we're not actively being thankful for who God is and what he's done for us. We become ungrateful that leads to bitterness, which can lead to idolatry. The next we see is jealousy. That they've been, they were raised in a, you have to remember these people, they've come out of Egypt and they would have lived in Egypt, they would have been born and raised and lived in Egypt their entire life, surrounded by all sorts of alien belief systems, but they would have been witnesses to that. They would have seen it. Perhaps even themselves, they would have worshipped some of these Egyptian gods, who many of them were, were tangible, physical things that you could see, idols that you could see before you. And maybe having been raised in that culture, they were a bit jealous, even. Why can't we have a why does God have to be invisible or just a cloud in the sky? Why can't we have God here with us? And we can be the same. You know, money is a physical, tangible thing that you can hold in your hands. You can log in and see your bank account. You can see the money coming in. It's a tangible thing. It's very real physical thing and it feels a bit easier we wouldn't think of it like this but it becomes a bit easier to worship something like that that's there in front of you and that's kind of what happens here is that they have this God that they that they build perhaps out of jealousy and I think the final reason is they had a, a desire for freedom. Desire for freedom. It says in, in verse 6 that when they throw this festival, that they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What that word play is probably referring to is sex. It's probably what happened at this big party. This isn't just a nice kind of Christian bring and share lunch that they were having. You know, you bring a quiche, I'll bring an omelette. That's not what's going on here. And they've built themselves a, this tangible God that they can see and touch and know, but they've also built a God that doesn't speak. 
where the God that they've known is not, he's an invisible God, but they've heard his voice. He speaks. But yet, we prefer it the other way around. We want a God that we can see and, uh, and we can know it and we can touch it, but that doesn't say anything to us. Because we want a God that will give us, that will basically just let us do what we want. We don't want a God that will challenge our values. We don't want a God that will challenge what we want to do with our life, the choices we make. We don't want a God that's going to question those things. We want a God that does what we want, that condones our behavior, who agrees with what we want to believe. We want God on mute. You know, we like the experience. We can come and sing and worship, and it gives us a kind of a spiritual kick that we can walk out the door with. But we don't want God to challenge us. We don't want that sort of God. We just want a God that will give us the freedom that we want. So, what are the results of this idolatry? We see it. It's mapped out in the next few verses of what happens. First of all, corruption. Corruption, this is what God says to Moses. It says, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. That's, that's what idolatry will do to you. Anything that even a good thing that you put before God, that will become your God. You'll begin to worship it. And when you do that, what happens is these idols, they'll make you become like them. They'll corrupt you. So for instance, if sex becomes your God, you just decide you want to live a promiscuous lifestyle, just sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want, what will happen is, is that you'll become shallow, <laughs> that you'll be desensitized to the pain of it, and you'll treat relationships for whatever you can get out of them, and yet inside you'll just know this lack of any value or worth for yourself because you'll have been corrupted by the idol. Or if, if money becomes your idol, I don't know if you've... I remember my, my, my sister, she lives in a part of England uh, in, a, in a small town which there are a few villages nearby which is kind of um, sort of where lots of millionaires and very rich people who live in that part of England live including lots of football players that play for Manchester United and Manchester City. They all live in these few villages. And uh, in the, they have charity shops where all these rich people go and they, they get rid of all their stuff so you can go and just buy it. You get some cheap bling. <laughs> have you ever seen that, where someone who's just got lots of money, they kind of become what, like, what they worship in that they become shiny, you know, seriously, they you know, have the tan, the clothes, the jewelry, because they want to display their wealth 
but again, they become, they become almost exactly like the thing they worship, shiny on the outside, but dull on the inside. That's what idolatry will do to you. It will make you become like itself. We become what we worship. And that's the next result of idolatry, is that it, it demands worship and sacrifice. It demands it from us. And you might think, well, isn't religion the same? Isn't God the same? God wants us to worship him, to bring sacrifices to him. He said, well, yeah, you read the God of the Bible, that's the same. But the problem is, when you worship God, you actually, you, you get something in return. When you worship and sacrifice to idols, you get nothing in return. Instead, they'll just demand more of you each time. And you'll sacrifice more, and it will demand more. That's what it will, will do. So if you think about it, if you want to pursue a lifestyle of promiscuity, if you just want to have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, the sacrifice you will have to make, well, there's lots of sacrifices, but you'll have to sacrifice family and stability. You, you can't have both. You, you, and you might think that you can, but you won't be able to. These idols will demand your worship and your sacrifice, but they give nothing back. Maybe a momentary small piece of fake joy, but it won't last. The next result of this idolatry is that they replace God. That's what they do here. They, they build, a, it's a substitute replacement God, this golden calf that they make. And because actually it's a bit of a, like we've looked in these previous chapters, it's rather than build the ark of God that God's told them to, because where this fits in the story is we've had these few chapters of God giving the instructions of how to build the tabernacle, but they haven't done it yet. They go on to do that in the next few chapters. This is this in-between moment. And they've built on their, their, kind of their own personal replica of the ark, but in calf form. That's kind of what they're doing here. And what idols will do is they will overthrow God in your heart. The Bible says you can't worship God and money. Very clearly. And the bigger principle that's telling us is you can't worship God and other idols. It will be one or the other. They're replacement gods that will seek to overthrow God in your heart. The next result of idolatry is it makes them, it makes us stiff-necked. To be stiff-necked, it means like a, a horse or a donkey that, you know, you put, what's that thing called? The, the bit or the bridle or whatever that you put on the, the horse and then you sit and you steer it. But a, a, an animal that's stiff-necked won't go the way you direct it to go. It will go its own way. No matter how much you try and steer it, it's going to jump over that fence. Tough. 
And what God's saying is the people of God have become like a, a horse or a donkey that's stubborn, that's narrow-minded, that will only go its way and won't listen to any other opinion. And again, that's what idolatry will do to you. It'll make you stiff-necked in that you'll become so obsessed with what you want to do, with what you want to achieve, what you think is right, that you won't listen to anyone else. You won't listen to God because you've got, uh, you've got your, this is how I'm going to do it. This is my plan. You become stiff-necked. And finally, I guess perhaps the main result that we see in this passage is what it says in verse 10, is that it leads to judgment. Leads to judgment. That's what happens. These idols, they promise a false freedom. You don't need God. Where's God when you need him? That's what they were saying there at the foot of the mountain. Where's Moses? I don't know. He's abandoned us. Where's God when we need him? And they thought, well, we'll just make our own God instead. But what happens to them is judgment. And that raises two, there are two questions which I guess from the rest of this chapter that you might be thinking. One of them is about judgment, which we'll come to in a moment or two. But the other question is, can we, does God change his mind? I don't know if you noticed that in the story, but God's angry and he wants to wipe them out and start again with Moses. I'll make a great nation of you, not those, you. And Moses argues with God, not just in this chapter, but in the next chapter, in chapter 33. Again, Moses goes and intercedes on their behalf. He's their mediator before God. And he argues with God, and God relents. God seems to change his mind. So that raises quite a big theological problem for us. Does God change his mind? Does God change? And the best way, when you find something in Scripture that you don't understand, is to interpret it in the light of the rest of the Bible. Don't just take one verse in isolation and build a theology around it. You take a verse and then you use the rest of the Bible to try and help you understand what that means. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to do a quick Bible study. So first of all, it says in Malachi 3 verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. God is immutable. It means he doesn't change ever. God is eternal. Sometimes you, you get tricked into thinking that maybe the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, you know, there's the angry God of the Old Testament and there's the kind of the happy, kind God of the New Testament. God, he's the same all the way through. All through history, God has been the same and he always will be the same. He doesn't change. It says in Hebrews 6, it talks about the unchangeable character of his purpose. Not only does God in himself not change, his plans, his purposes, what he intends to do, do not change. They're unchanging. God is unchanging in his plans, his purposes. 
In Isaiah 54, it talks about the, um, the, his covenant of peace shall not be removed. God is unchanging, not just in his plans and purpose, but in keeping his covenant promises. God, he's, he's unchanging in keeping his promises. And finally, there's lots of verses we could quote on this, but God is unchanging in his holiness. Whereas we falter and we fail, God doesn't. In his holiness, he's pure always and forever. He's unchanging in it. But what we can see in this passage is that we can, we can pray. That's what we see Moses doing. He prays. He as this mediator, he intercedes for the people. Alec Motia, a um, wonderful theologian, said this, at the heart of God's changelessness is a mystery. The sovereign, unchangeable God accomplishes his purposes through the prayers of his people. There's a mystery there that you'll never quite understand, but it's definitely there in the Bible that God often waits for us to ask. He, he wants us to ask him for things. That's what's happening here is God wants Moses to come and make this request of him. Because the thing is, he's a good father and although we're often interested in the outcome, he's interested in, in our hearts. And he wants us to come and pray and ask him for things. Because he wants to, as we pray, he'll change something within you. He wants you to come and wrestle with him, even, even to argue with God, because he wants to change you. Because often there have been times when I've said to God, but you said this. Why haven't you done it? And I'll come and, 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 and almost argue with God. I'll throw back his promises, but you said. And I find as I do that, something changes within me. And my selfish motivation begins to get stripped away. And that thing where I perhaps before was passionate about it for my own ends, I suddenly become passionate about it because of what God wants to happen. He changes me as I, as I pray, because he wants to work in us and through us. That's God's plan for a broken world, is his people, the church. He wants to work through us. And part of how that happens is by us praying and seeking him, and then he works and he moves in our lives. A quick lesson in prayer is to do what Moses does here, and very simply, what Moses does is he takes Scripture, the Word, he takes God's promises and he throws them back at him. But you said to Abraham and Isaac, you made these promises to Abraham, you said that all the stars of the heaven will be your people. He argues back with God. That's a great way to pray. It's just to take a bit of Scripture and say, God, you've promised these things. To pray through scripture with God will do you good. It's a good way to pray. 
And really, I guess you might still have the question, but surely God seems to change his mind. How is that working? But the reality, this, this passage, it's not about God changing, but it's about his people who've changed. Don't miss that in this passage. God hasn't changed. His people have changed. He remains faithful to his purpose. He doesn't change in that. He remains faithful to his covenant promises. He doesn't change in that. But they have changed in that. They've changed. He hasn't. Which brings us to our next question. First question was, does God change? The next one is, is God angry? Does God get angry here? And the short answer is, yes, he does. But we need to explain why that happens. Because the context here is, as we were explaining at the start, they've not just made an idol, but they've built their, in, their own false religion. They've turned in total, complete rebellion against God. They've decided to go their own way. We've been looking over the last few weeks about how in this tabernacle story, you see it speaking back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 of God creating the world and God's bringing about this new creation by dwelling again amongst his people. But what's happening here is also looking back to Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve rebel against God and he has to throw them out of the garden. That's what's happening here. It's the same story all over again. They've turned their back on God. And there's this fascinating verse in verse 20 of Exodus here, where it says that when Moses comes down the mountain and he's angry and he throws the tablets down and they break, and then he takes the calf that they'd made, he burns it with fire, grinds it to powder, he scatters it on the water and he makes the people drink it. I don't know what that tastes like, but it doesn't sound good. Now, why is this happening? What's going on here? Well, there's another story where this happens in the Bible, in Numbers chapter 5, a similar story of where they're made to effectively drink their sin. And the context of that story in Numbers 5 is about adultery, which gives us a bit of a clue, a hint of what, what's happening here. It says in Jeremiah 31, it says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. See, God's made this covenant promise the best way to explain what a covenant is is to think of a wedding. When, when a couple stands there and they make promises to one another and they're entering into a, a, a covenant, an oath, an agreement. And yet what this passage is saying is what they've done is they've broken that. This is like the husband who five weeks after his wedding day cheats on his wife. I mean, that's graphic and should shock us, but that's what's happening here. 
that God's made this covenant promise to them as their husband and as their bride, his people, they've rejected that and they've gone off with someone else instead. That's the severity, the horribleness of what's happening in this story. And that means that actually the best way you can think of anger in this context is it's surely that has to be the right response. How could you have any other response when that happens? If that happened to you, maybe that has happened to you. You're just full of rage and anger, and rightly so, because that's evil. When we see evil, anger is, is not a bad response. It's an appropriate response to evil. When we see injustice, evil, gross, hideous sin, we should get angry. The thing is, often because we're not God, we get angry about silly things. The writer John Stott, he said this, what provokes our anger, injured vanity, never provokes his. What provokes his anger, evil, seldom provokes ours. We, got, we get angry when someone's rude to us. <laughs> you know? When you're cycling and someone cycles into the back of your bike, you get angry. When you get overlooked for a position in your company, you get angry. When your lecturer doesn't give you the grade you wanted on your paper, you get angry. When someone spills coffee on you, you get angry. None of them are good reasons to get angry. That God gets angry against evil. And the word it uses here is, is wrath, which again is perhaps might sound like a hideous thing, but the best way to understand this wrath is this is what, in some occasions, what love can look like. Because if you think about it like this, God will not allow anything to stand in the way of his love. He won't allow anything to stand in the way of his love. And if you love something very much, then you should hate anything that seeks to destroy that thing. Does that make sense? If you love something, but there's something that's trying to destroy, destroy that, then it's appropriate to hate that thing. And that's how God responds here. See, God's wrath, it speaks in the Bible about being a refiner's fire. What that means is it, it only brings out pure good. When God turns his wrath up against something, it's because he wants to bring out good. He wants to burn and destroy something to bring good out. And this story in chapter 32 concludes with Moses offers to make an atonement. He says, perhaps I can make an atonement. That's what he says to the people, and then he goes up to God, and he offers himself. He says, blot me out. And yet what happens is, in verse 33, is God declines. God says, nice try, Moses. That's not going to happen. 
Now, why is that? That's another question we have to pick up because, because you could say, well, surely that's just the gospel, right? Moses is just being wonderfully Christ-like and yet God turns him down. Why is that? Well, the thing is, Moses is, you know, in many ways just like us, a flawed human. He's not the perfect sacrifice. He's not. And a perfect sacrifice is what's required to bear the wrath of God. And Moses, in chapter 33, he goes into the desert. He builds this temporary tabernacle. He gets to talk with God face to face. He intercedes. But now we have a high priest who says, it says in Hebrews that he lives always to make intercession for his people. Do you think about it where, where we have so often built golden calves, idolatry, as a replacement, as a substitute God, and yet Jesus came to be a substitute for us. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's really what this story is about, that so often we, we even knowing God's goodness, we still give ourselves to, to other lesser things. We worship temporary, substitute, weak gods. But yet, in his grace and mercy, Jesus gave himself for us as our substitute, our once and for all sacrifice. Then Moses then, there's this wonderful story where he hides himself in the rock. He's unable to see God and he comes down to see the people and his face is shining. It talks about that in 2 Corinthians. It says, for God said, let light shine out of darkness. It shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. No longer, we don't need Moses to come down the mountain and have a temporary fading glory on his face. It says in the Hebrews that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. That even in our rebellion, God overtakes us and his light shines into our darkness. That in his wonderful mercy and grace, even when we, we know the goodness of God, when we turn our backs on him, his light still shines into our darkness. It's still shining today. Is Jesus, your substitute, is enough for you. If you're a believer in him today, you might think, but, but what about all these things I've done, even this week? The hidden things in your heart cause you so much shame and guilt. And yet, He's enough for you. He's this perfect, once and for all, substitute for you. And if you're maybe feeling maybe some conviction in your heart, that's just his, the goodness of his light shining into your darkness. 
He wants to expose what's evil in your life so his goodness can rush in. Okay, let's pray. In a moment, Derek's going to lead us in communion and the band are going to lead us in some worship. But if you want to, why don't you just stand to your feet and let me pray for us. <sighs> Jesus, we, we, we just want to recognize in our life that just like this, the people of God here, we need to be rescued, not just from the slavery that's been imposed on us, but we need to be rescued from the internal rebellion in our hearts. That often it keeps seeking to overthrow you, and yet we thank you that we have a perfect substitute that you gave yourself for us. That Jesus, you did choose to be blotted out. You did choose to bear the wrath of God so that we might go free. So that we might know your forgiveness and your mercy. And we get to now be your followers, your people, made holy by your work for us. And I just pray for anyone here that that knows that their life is in the grip of idolatry, that it's demanding sacrifice after sacrifice of them, that's corrupting them and they can't get free. I just pray that your light would shine into their darkness this morning and just bring freedom to their hearts. For those who are believers in you, that they would they would know your freedom. They would walk in your goodness. They would walk free of the slavery knowing that you've broken those chains and you've set them free by your grace. If there's anyone who's here who isn't a believer in you, they would just know your love for them. I pray you'd help them to turn their back on their evil ways and put their trust in you and you alone and your grace would flood into their heart right now. Amen.